Before that, we've another chunk of Fry's English delight. This week, English Plus One is about people who speak English and another language equally well. Stephen Fry celebrates bilingualism across age groups and cultures, starting with a memory from Barry Davis. And I remember we had this old wind-up gramophone, very beautiful gramophone, you know, walnut or something. Yes. <laughs> and my grandfather had a lot of records, 78s, and I used to play them. Barry Davis. I obviously had that sense that there was something valuable there. At 70, our oldest bilingual, and yes, there was and still is something valuable there. Very valuable. In this programme, almost everyone you'll hear, except me, speaks English and something else with equal ease, anywhere they need to. Bilinguals. And we'll be trying to assess that value in the context of a number of very different people and languages, new and old. And there were these old Yiddish records, and I really enjoyed it. Other members of the family might say to me, you know, who's interested? This was the 1950s, they, they want to be modern, you know. But people still spoke it, including my parents. Uh, but I didn't make a thing of it. There weren't ideologists of Yiddish. Most people, ordinary working-class people, were not ideologists of Yiddish. They just spoke it. It was their language. And equally, alongside English, Yiddish is Barry's language. Bilinguals usually come in two flavours. Early bilinguals who learn their two or more languages simultaneously from birth. And late bilinguals who come to a second language long after they've learnt the first. Antonella Saracci, late bilingual in Italian and English. I'm a professor of developmental linguistics at the University of Edinburgh. I do research on bilingualism and language learning from children to adults to older adults. An early bilingual is someone who had the opportunity to learn two languages or more than two from very early on. Not necessarily from birth, but also from early childhood. When the brain is maximally open and receptive, they learn these languages spontaneously, without effort. And that makes the learning different from an adult learner, a teacher who actually tells them in Turkish you put the verb at the end, you know, in English you don't. A child doesn't need this stuff because as long as they hear enough Turkish or whatever the language is, they learn these rules implicitly. So Barry, I mean, you are totally bilingual in English and Yiddish, but in terms of how that happened, you, you, you're a rule breaker when it comes to the early and late um, characteristics. That's um, right, yes. As you say, by, uh, you know, early bilingual, late bilingual, you know, I couldn't have an active speaker of Yiddish. I picked it up. Yeah. You yeah, know, I mean, spoke. as you do. I loved listening to it. I was what you might call a passive understander of Yiddish. I didn't really have the opportunity much to speak it and I didn't, wasn't able to read and write in it. And so I was left with the voice, with the sounds, with the knowledge in the back of my head. Nobody ever really wanted us consciously to know in Yiddish. If somebody had made the connection, if somebody had helped me, I could have made the connection when I was very young. Somebody is making the connection for Luca, our youngest bilingual. He's just four and he's playing with some little pirate figures with his bilingual mum. Can a pirate drive the truck, Luke? No. 
Now, if you're just four, you can happily accept that different worlds, traditional pirates and 21st century dumper trucks, say, can coexist on the same floor space. Same with language. Can you drive a dumper truck with a wooden leg and an eye patch? He doesn't talk about the different languages that much. We'll point out that so-and-so speaks this language or that language. And he'll listen out for other languages, like on the plane back from France the other day, he was like, oh, what are they speaking? It was like, oh, it's German. You know, so he's, he'll listen out for differences. And uh, it, I don't know how to put it. Well, put it this way, in the complex context of cheese, Luca knows that many French cheeses are smelly, not including Madame Laurique. My favourite cheese. C'est quoi ton fromage préféré? Uh, Madame Laurique, isn't it? Madame Laurique, c'est un fromage qui pue? That was Maman Sylvia in the cheese department. Working out who's who and what's what is a natural part of all children's language development. So Sylvia's always been Maman in French, and I've always been Mummy in English. And so Luca won't necessarily say that he's got two mums, because he's actually got a Maman and a Mummy. In French, if you say, T'as deux mamans, I dis non, j'ai un Maman, une Maman et une Mummy. <laughs> yeah, that's his language, his way of talking about it. Children seem to mix the two languages. But if you look at the way they do it, first of all, they tend to do it with other bilingual speakers. They don't do it when they speak to monolingual speakers because they know that if they mix and they speak to a monolingual, they're not going to be understood. So mixing becomes a good strategy of communication that among bilinguals makes the message better, more communicative. As well as mixing, Luca is learning about organising. I keep Lego up here and Playmobil downstairs. That's how they're not mixed up. That's why I say Lego is English. So why is Lego English? Because I said this is English, so that's why I say Playmobil is French. <laughs> He'll recognise French as French, so he's not just a bilingual mix of languages that we speak. He separates them very clearly. So if we go to Grandma Grandpa's, he speaks English. He'll stop speaking French to us, he'll speak English as we cross the doorway. So Luca is a perfect example of a delightful aspect of early bilingualism. Early bilinguals develop human empathy earlier than monolinguals. Antonella Sirace. Bilingual children understand at an earlier age that people can have different views of the world from their own. And this comes from this ability to realize that not everybody is bilingual and so you have to choose the right language. Other people are not the same as you linguistically and that is a extended outside language in more general terms. And so there is an earlier sensitivity that other people can look at the same things from a different perspective. The earlier you start having, you know, the idea that, yes, there are different points of view, different perspectives, they are all important, I think that's much better. If he plays on his own now, with his Legos or Playmobil, he would do the scenarios and the talking in English. And maybe play comes more easily in English because he goes to nursery and does play group. It's... So he's bilingual but not... 
What is bilingual? <laughs> Here's the definition. For me, a bilingual is someone who knows more than one language and uses them on a regular basis. Regular use, you know, means that you clearly can use the language in more than just a couple of contexts, right? Because I use more than one language in my everyday life, you know, that makes me a bilingual, although I'm not perfect. I mean, what is perfection? The perfect bilingual doesn't exist. There's always a language that is either, you know, slightly ahead or a lot, you know, ahead, depending on circumstances, depending on where people live, depending on what they're talking about, depending on who they're talking with and things like that. Our bilinguals seem to agree there's one way of identifying which of a bilingual person's two languages dominates. Luca's mum, Harriet. If I get angry, I'll probably get angry in English. <laughs> because that's what comes first. He's laughing. <laughs> the one time when her English regularly breaks down is when she's really angry. It doesn't happen very often. Bob Ladd, also bilingual, is Professor Sirachi's husband. But, and the other, the other one was when the kids were small and they wake up in the middle of the night. So bilingual's dominant language emerges emotionally. This is 30-year-old early bilingual Artif Nawaz. I do re recall an instance when I was aged six in the metro in Paris, and I, I kind of badgered my parents in Urdu to buy me this little toy camera, which was wildly expensive, but I remember them kind of caving to my demands and buying it for me, and my mother insisting that I wear the strap for the camera around my neck, and I, I wouldn't because I just didn't think it looked cool, right? At six years of age, I already had this idea of what is cool and what is not. I was like, nay, nay, man, nay, nay, man, nay, man, which means... You know, no, no, I don't want to wear it that way in Urdu. And the doors uh, were about to shut and my parents said, OK, let's get off this train. So we get off the train and, of course, I'd left my camera in the metro and the train sailed off into the tunnel. It was like a scarring memory. I could have said, Mum, I've left the camera on the train, but I didn't. I was like... It's interesting to think what language I would have used if I was there with my big brother. I probably would have used English because I guess... I don't know. I think there's a, a, a kind of intimacy or a kind of relationship you just one just has with their mother. Maybe it tells you something a little bit more about how deep your kind of mother tongue, literally in this case, your mother tongue, is. Urdu. It's buried in my subconscious. Late bilinguals, unlike early birds Luca and Artif, have to acquire their second language in a very different way. In the 50s, young Barry Davis had heard and spoken Yiddish, but not really learned it. We were going to a function where you would have this type of what they now call klezmer music, and the whole atmosphere... This music, the Yiddish language... The fact they were dancing... And I sort of remember my, my father dancing specifically with his sister, actually, with the handkerchief, like they used to do in Eastern Europe. This impressed me, a tremendously interesting culture. Being aware of the past and remembering the past and remembering your heritage and cherishing what you have. Yes. And then you did consciously set out to learn it later on? Much later. Once the acquisition window had closed? Yes, went much later, because I didn't learn it in any earnestness until my mother died. I remember thinking exactly, now that my mother is dead... 
Who am I going to talk Yiddish with? How is the Yiddish going to continue? I have to make an effort. For Barry, that meant finding more formal education, motivated by that cultural impulse. Now here's another late bilingual. You cannot really learn a language without actually getting to know the culture. And to get to know the culture, you have to be there. And you have to be impressionable. Oh, yeah, 16 is, was a very important age for me. German and English late bilingual Juliana Muster formerly learned English at school in Berlin, but had her first real-life encounter with English when she was 16, that's 17 years ago, when she went on an educational exchange. <laughs> to Arkansas. My host family owned a rodeo company. When they picked me up from the airport, we went straight to the rodeo. I felt a bit as if I was in a film or something. It was very different from home. Because I'm from Berlin, which is a big city, and I came to Arkansas, which is a very rural area. Even after maybe two months, there were still people that I couldn't understand because they had a very, very, very strong accent. Everything was new to me, but I got used to it because nobody knew me. I was just Julie, the German girl. I liked it, and also, I also picked up their English, which is, of course, a bit different from the English that I speak now. Well, when I came back from the stage, I think I kind of talked like that, and I didn't even notice. <laughs> it was kind of like a new beginning, I think. Now meet another 16-year-old in Rome, also bilingual, but culturally very different. Francisco Firth. I'm Francisco Firth. I live in Rome. I'm 16 years old. I'm interested in internet culture and things like that. But not many culturally improving visits to English-speaking countries. Even though I don't often go uh, abroad to uh, Anglophone places, I am exposed to the English language via the internet or wh whatever I read. I seem to be doing my own voiceover and that's quite interesting. Francesco, early bilingual, lives in a bilingual household. So the two sources of English for Francesco are family and internet. Of course, one is formed of three or four people, whilst the other one is formed by several billion. Culturally, does the internet, where Francesco interacts daily in English, perform the same function for Francesco as Arkansas did for Juliana? Is the internet a place? Um, yes because it has its own traditions, law and rules. But there is an Internet English um, that is, let's say, an overlay to your regular English. An Internet accent, except it's not an accent you hear, it's more one you see written down. What you write is heavily um, influenced by what kind of humour is funny. So unfinished sentences are very popular right now. When you can't fathom how something can be so strange, you're like, I can't even... Neither can I. What we can say is more and more bilinguals will add Internet English to their language portfolio. We asked Francesco in Rome about the inside of his brain and its capacity. Two languages, two morphologies, two vocabularies. What's it like to have all that lot going on in one head? Predictably, he uses a technological metaphor for processing power. It's not about ROM, but about RAM. It's not about permanent memory and carrying it all with you. Things sort of occupy the same space. It's about accessing it only when you need it. 
I'm not speaking in both languages at the same time, it's always one or the other, like sun and moon. If when one's there, the other one isn't. So I guess I'm selectively monolingual, I suppose, because when I'm speaking in English, I'm only speaking in English, and when I'm speaking in Italian, I'm only speaking in Italian. Selecting which language to speak in must require some kind of RAM, yeah. I may never actually think about it. Francesco's account of his cerebral processing power chimes with the current science. A key skill bilinguals have is control of one language when they are speaking another. If you merely speak a foreign language competently, you'll know the uncomfortable feeling that you're continually translating in your head. Antonella Soracci. If you're not a proficient bilingual, yes, you're very much aware that your other language is intruding all the time. All languages are active in the brain. They're on. You can't switch one off because you don't need it. So I'm speaking English to you now, but my Italian, it's very much active in my brain and I'm suppressing it. And all bilinguals do this. It's not something that we're aware of doing. This experience of focusing on one language and excluding the other has been found to have effects outside language. Positive effects. Technically speaking, bilinguals continually exercise the brain's executive function system, which focuses, directs and prioritises attention and decision-making at a very high level. They do this more than we do. Meaning, for starters, that bilinguals develop a stronger ability to multitask and have better attentiveness levels. There's even some research that says bilinguals conveniently devolve to their second, less emotional language for more rational decision-making. And they learn other languages better, predictably. Francesco's doing Japanese and French and Spanish. Another brain question. What language does he dream in? If it's just one big dream about anything, about big dragons, I don't know, my brain doesn't have to explain things to myself. For that reason, it don't have to tell me I'm speaking in English or in Italian. It just arrives, you know, instantly. Dreams don't need subtitles. But this does... Let the chaos begin. <laughs> I feel like a kid. MTV's Geordie Shaw, the um, reality programme based in Newcastle about bright young things having a good time. If you're a German speaker, it definitely needs subtitles. And Juliana in Berlin, who learned all about bicultural bilingualism by living at the Arkansas Rodeo 17 years ago, is the perfect woman for the job. She works for VSI in Berlin, which translates and dubs and generally acts as a movie and TV Tower of Babel. Juliana is a subtitler. We are right now seeing um, a character of Geordie Shaw. He's called Gary, and he's talking to one of his mates. Last time round, me and Shaw started sleeping together again, but we called it off before any feelings got involved. We started to subtitle the show, but it turned out to be really, really difficult. No kissing? And you're not no kissing, and you're saying you're not going to get No, I'm not going to do nothing with Marnie. Let's see. At this point, it's quite interesting because they, they're really talking... Um, you have to reduce the text because you can never put everything that's said there. No kissing? You're not going to get No, I'm not going to do nothing with Marnie. You have to fit text to picture. So this means I always have to pay attention to the pace of the video because whenever somebody starts talking the subtitle has to appear and when he stops it has to disappear of course <laughs> of course I also have to find the right tone 
in German. So as we see, Geordie Shaw is quite, um, it's quite strong language. Last time around, me and Shaw started sleeping together again. Sleeping together is softer, but I don't have enough time to put miteinander schlafen, which is very long in German. So letztes Mal hatten Charlotte und ich Sex. Because in the context of Geordie Shaw, it's okay. That's because German viewers will never know the compromises in language detail the highly qualified Juliana has been forced to make in order to visually represent the pace of life and speech in Geordie Shaw. Here's another character. This one's a graduate, in English anyway. I should have a degree in pulling women. I should have a degree in pulling women. And we translated with Ich kriege jederum. We left out the degree, but we kept the pulling. When you see a subtitled TV show, you see what the people are doing and you hear their original voices. And I think this is very important because they also define the character. Even if you don't understand what they're saying, you can still get an idea of how do they feel or what kind of mood there is in the scene in the moment. You cannot convert Geordie into German as a banker would convert euros into pounds or something. Wise words. Artif Nawaz, Urdu-speaking early bilingual camera loser, also uses his bilingualism for our entertainment. And he wears his very lightly. So you're kind of walking down uh, Wembley High Road and you see people speaking so many different languages. Like, you know, there's people speaking Eastern European languages, Gujarati, Marathi, Hindi. Being bilingual in this world is almost like a standard thing. You don't, you don't walk around thinking like, hey, I'm bilingual. You don't really enjoy that necessarily in the same way as like, hey, I just got my bachelor's. Hey, I just bought some nice chicken and I enjoyed it. That was lovely. Or hey, I just passed my driving test. You really celebrate these things in life, but you don't necessarily think about how much it adds to your life to be bilingual. I certainly never did before we had this chat. Artif's night job, when he's not on the sofa presenting Living the Life on the Islam Channel, a kind of Muslim one-show, is as a bilingual comedian. If you speak both Urdu and English, and maybe Punjabi as well, then you'll get the most from my show without a shadow of a doubt, in terms of understanding, but in terms of entertainment. And I really like it because uh, I often go to watch Bollywood films with English people, right, with white people. It, there's something quite interesting to people who don't understand all the languages, and really it's those people I'm trying to target. I'm trying to target the person that kind of senses the otherness of Urdu, Punjabi, Hindi. In my stand-up comedy, I often talk about Bollywood. So in Bollywood, of course, the, the main language is Hindi, which is almost identical to Urdu. White people, white English people. They often ask me, look, what's he saying? What's, 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 what's going on? What's the, what's the lyrics, right? So, I mean, I'll translate it for you a little bit. Um, but I do sense that there's certain people in the audience, maybe the ones with the brown faces, I actually worry that they might spoil this because they might know the punchline before it gets there. It translates to... In your eyes, there is something kind of strange. <laughs> I don't know, maybe conjunctivitis or something. When I start singing the lyrics in Hindi, you know, you'll hear certain people laughing already. Whereas when I start translating in English, you'll hear the other part of the audience come into it. So there's a laughter hierarchy almost. Urdu speakers, Hindi speakers, Punjabi speakers, and maybe at the end, English speakers. I can't express my ideas properly in just the one language. Atif Nawaz, bilingual comedian, and his multilingual audience. But very occasionally, bilingualism can sow mistrust among those who experience it on the receiving end, as if the speaker didn't match the words. Bob Ladd. Physically, I could be a German, but when I lived in Germany, it occasionally happened that I would be taken for a native speaker, and then somehow it would come out that I wasn't. And I had a couple of occasions when people... It was as if I'd... I'd 
put something over on them, of, in effect, deceiving them. I was actively pretending to be German when, from my point of view, all I was doing was just speaking German as I knew how to do it. Now, Bob Ladd doesn't speak an English you might relate to England. He's North American. Early trilingual Shafali experiences a similar problem. She's a senior teacher trainer who has always lived and worked in India, and her speciality is English in the classroom. She's in Manchester at a conference of teachers, and Shafali says even there, some people make a basic error to do with their perception of her languages. Treating me like English is my second language. The official languages in India are Hindi and English. I'm now holding up a 10-rupee note in my hand. The currency is acceptable the world over, and it shows Hindi on top and English below that, which says Reserve Bank of India. And 10 rupees is written in both Hindi and in English. So this is my language. I think it is proof that it is my language. So it actually hurts when somebody says, no, it isn't yours. It's mine. Back in India, the same kind of prejudice happens in reverse. Shafali's North Indian by birth, but her work is in South India, whose inhabitants sometimes doubt her Indianness. They often ask, actually, if I am Indian. It used to hurt me initially, but now I've kind of just just think it's curiosity and I talk about it. But when I come to Britain, then I'm brown and I again have a different accent. And then where are you from and which language do you speak at home? So I was saying to my friend Jeremy, where do I belong? I'm too English for the South Indians I'm working with, but I'm too Asian for the English I'm working with. So where do I belong? And he said, with us. And he got up and he hugged me. Us is everybody who speaks English. It doesn't matter what English it is. It's the language that unifies everybody. We've said before there is no single English, and our English is, can be Geordie, American, German, Indian or Cockney. No surprise then that English is the world's favourite component for bilingualism. And Yiddish is one of the rarer ones. Barry Davis, I, I know you get cross when people call Yiddish, well I won't say dead, but it's kind of surely, uh, has railings around it, it's a historical monument. Well, it's ridiculous to say Yiddish is dead. It's not only wrong, it's absurd. Day to day, I'm in contact with people who are speaking Yiddish, mostly with my work, because I'm working amongst the Hasidim particularly, who uh, speak Yiddish every day, the children speak Yiddish and so on. So I, I'm speaking Yiddish with them. That's a very important, very... I mean, there are a lot of them and they're growing. The Hasidim are a group of people from, uh, in origin from Eastern Europe, and they follow different... There are different groups, and they are settled in certain parts of the world, mainly in uh, New York and in Israel, but they're concentrated in Stafford Hill, and their particular thing is to keep their identity. They wear different clothes, mainly black clothes for the men, long coats, Homburg hats or similar hats, and they don't want to be absorbed by the English culture. So for them, Yiddish is a weapon, in a way, against their acculturation a way of keeping the outside world at bay. You learn Yiddish because you want access to that world or access to that culture. Yes. So when you're teaching it, you're not really teaching a sort of, you know, tell me the way to the post office type of Yiddish. Right. You're teaching something which gives you an insight into the culture. This is a sort of thousand-year-old Yiddish culture. Barry Davis and the multiple multilinguals who took part, thank you very, very much. It's difficult to explain what it's like to be one. Now, if I, Artif Nawaz, was an ice cream, 
You might be tempted to think of me as Neapolitan ice cream, but I think of it more as a swirly ice cream where everything's kind of mixed together. If you take a spoonful of it, you wouldn't necessarily get just a bit of chocolate or vanilla or strawberry. You might get a, you get La delizia inglese di fritto è prodotta da Nick Baker, è una produzione test bed per BBC Radio 4. È stata rappresentata da Stephen Fry. How's that? Yeah, isn't it extraordinary? And that was the last Fry's English Delight in this series. It'll be back next year, but there's more about bilingualism with Barry Davis and Thomas Schaffernacker talking to Stephen Fry on the BBC website.